Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com. Hi, this is Olympic bronze medalist in judo, Marty Malloy, and you're listening to Martial Arts World Radio. Welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. I'm your host, Joseph Clark. Each episode, we feature interviews with martial arts stars from the UFC, Bellator, Action Cinema, Olympic medalists, and legends of martial arts. Our guests today are UFC fighter and winner of the Ultimate Fighter reality television program, Chad LaPreeze, world champions Cynthia Rothrock and Christine Bannon-Rodriguez, action star Michael Jai White, and martial artist and cinema star Hank Garrett. This week's inspirational quote is from the movie Rocky and goes as follows. If you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. Sylvester Stallone in Rocky, 1976. UFC fighter Chad LaPreeze conducted a seminar this past weekend at Phoenix Performance Center in Mount Forest, Ontario, Canada. There was a great turnout, and Chad provided a very effective and practical seminar. Congrats to Dave Reeves, owner and head instructor at Phoenix Performance Center, for a terrific event. The seminar allowed me an opportunity to interview Chad LaPreeze. Born July 23, 1986, he is a Canadian professional mixed martial artist currently competing for the UFC. A professional competitor since 2010, Chad won the Ultimate Fighter Nations Canada versus Australia and has also formerly competed for Bellator MMA. He is 5 foot 10 inches, weighing 170 pounds. He has a record of 12 wins, 2 losses. Chad LaPreeze, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. Thanks for having me, appreciate it. So we're here at Phoenix Performance Center, Dave Reeves Club. Would you share with us a little bit about your actual workout routine on a, on a Monday to Friday, or how many days do you work out when you're preparing for a fight? Yeah, so prepare for a fight or not. I train six days a week, always. I, I always rest on Sundays. But uh, So Monday through Friday, it's either two or three sessions a day. Saturday is uh, just one. And then so it'll range from, I do a striking practice uh, every single day, which, which is my main base. I'll, I'll do a grappling practice usually once a day or, 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 or every other, and then uh, strength conditioning three days a week. And is your routine fairly conventional compared to other fighters, or is, are, is there anything that you do that you feel is unique to yourself? Yeah, I feel like the uh, level of striking that uh, uh, that I learned definitely most people don't have. You know, I've, I've been blessed with awesome coaches, and proof is in the pudding. You know, you see some some of the skills that I've able to build I've built over the years, and it's, it's definitely credit to uh, to the coaches and all, all all the hard work that I put in. And in terms of uh, power training or weight training, strengthening, do you incorporate much of that? Yeah, so I do three days a week of uh, of a strength and conditioning. I had an awesome coach in Montreal, Jonathan Chamber, who, in my opinion, is uh, one of the best in the world. He's worked with some of the top athletes ever. So when, when I'm in Montreal, I'm uh, training with him. And when, when I'm back in London, I, I, I use his program back home. So we do, we do Olympic lifting, we do plyos, we do movement training, uh, cardio. We do, we, we do everything. And he follows me on a program where it's, it's periodized, so I'm able to peak and get ready for the fights. 
know, a lot of challenges that athletes have when they're doing so much power training or strength conditioning training is, of course, that period of time that's required to recover and repair. So how do you address that? So always my, my, uh, my motto is skills pay the bills. Martial arts training always comes to be before strength and conditioning. So my, the biggest reason I, I do the strength and conditioning training is to keep my body healthy so that I'm, I'm, I'm able to do my martial arts training. Obviously, the, the closer that, that I end up getting to a fight, then, then I'm going to ramp things up so I'm, I'm in peak physical shape. But other than that, most of the year, my strength and conditioning training is, is just a substitute to uh, martial arts and to uh, keep me fit and healthy. No doubt you're getting very conditioned through the process, but I imagine diet and rest comes into play. Especially when I was fighting at a, at a lightweight, I was spending 12 weeks just, just trying to make weight, you know what I mean? So uh, everything's important, right? Rest, recovery, diet, uh, nutrition, proper training. I've been doing this for 15 years now, training, you know, so it's something that I've kind of perfected uh, uh, over the years. But the hardest thing is, uh, is, is knowing when, when, uh, when to take a day off and uh, pull yourself back. You know, I think that's probably the biggest mistake that I've made uh, over my whole career is overtraining. But, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things I've, like, like in my head, I, I kind of always want to say, I can live with myself after if I said I train too much, then I'm not enough. But, you know, it's definitely the hardest balance, and it's something I'm still kind of working the kinks out. Is it common to experience some form of injury while you're prepping for a fight? Yeah, it's almost impossible. You know, I've really never fought 100% healthy, maybe, maybe, maybe a handful of times. But the most important thing, even now, I've cut, I've cut back on sparring a lot. You know, obviously, pe people are, are, are well aware of, of, of concussions and a brain injury now. It's just be, it's being as safe as possible, but this, this is a contact sport, you know. I find I actually get, I, I get hurt the most grappling than, than, than I do striking. So, but it's just, it, just, it comes with the, with the territory. I have awesome therapists who, who have worked me out. I have a guy in Montreal, Desmond McClish is his name, and he was, he was working on me five days a week. I have a guy in London, Jordan Kirsten, who's been treating me for like seven years now, and we work almost every single day. So I'm, I'm constantly getting, getting tune-ups, and I get bumps and bruises. He's in there to fix me up. It's pretty amazing, too, how the sport of MMA has grown, not just in popularity, but just the, the professional presentation, the caliber of fighters. Are you finding that it's a challenge to ever evolve and ever improve in terms of fight IQ and conditioning, um, the level of skill that the fighters that you're fighting now have compared to years ago, even with the uh, television program, The Ultimate Fighter? Is it ever progressing, and do you have to uh, adapt to that? Exactly. Every day, this sport's evolving. You know, there's always some young, hungry killer coming up who wants my spot, right? So it's, it's my job. And, you know, this is part of uh, just being a martial artist, is just trying to improve every day. I'm always trying to learn new skills. I'm always trying to perfect uh, every, everything I do. One of the interesting aspects to mixed martial arts, actually any form of martial arts that I hear frequently from both competitors and world champions from even the point karate days, is when they're preparing for tournaments or they're preparing for fights, is still having that balance with family and relationship. It, that seems to be a very common challenge for all professional athletes, but martial artists in particular. Can you comment a little bit on how you balance that out? And, and that's something that I've actually messed up in my career. I've been so focused that, like, especially when I was living in uh, Montreal, I did nothing but eat, sleep, and train, and I ended up burning myself out. You know, I, when, I, when I took my first loss to Francisco Trinaldo, I didn't even want to fight that night. I was just so burnt out from, from training, I just kind of wanted to get it over. And now I've, I've, I've really changed that up. I'm, I'm back home in uh, London, Ontario now. I have, I have all my family. I have, I have all my friends around. So now there's life outside of the gym. You know, before I could never turn my brain off from uh, martial arts. And now when, I, when, when I'm leaving the gym, I'm still doing some, some studying here and there. But I actually have a life and a bit of a hobby, you know, outside. So it's, it's definitely a work in progress. When, uh, when you're so driven the way I am, I absolutely want to be the best in the world. But I realized that overtraining like, like that and never taking time, time off, it actually hindered the process. So it's, it's, it's a work in progress, but um, I'm trying to find the uh, right recipe there.
Now, a question that I hear a lot that gets texted me from listeners who are always curious when I'm uh, talking to fighters, rather, from Bellator UFC, is how much actual contact or communication does the fighter have with the UFC? Does it all go through your manager, or are you fairly in frequent contact with them, and how does that play out? Yeah, so at this point in my career, I actually don't have a manager. I, I, I deal with the UFC myself. There really was no point. Uh, when, when I won the Ultimate Fighter, I signed a nine-fight deal. So there was really no point in, in uh, me having a manager. And there's, there, there, there's, there's definitely communication. When uh, the UFC had their Canada office, I was very close with every employee from the UFC Canada because I, I did a lot of PR stuff for them. But now that uh, those guys are gone and it's, and it's just to Vegas, I pretty much talk to them when, uh, when, when it's time to fight. I'll like, get an email or, or a phone call, and, uh, and that's about it. Between fights or when you finish a fight, do you find you need some time to just decompress and get away and not talk to anybody from MMA and just kind of go out and outside of that life and, and get away from it for a while just to replenish? Yeah, it's something that I've had a hard time with because I'd, 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 I would literally fight and I'd be training the very next day right, right away. So now it's kind of a rule that me and my wife have uh, made up. I usually fight and then I'll take one week vacation after and then do and do nothing related to martial arts. And by and by the end of that week, I'm itching to to get back in the gym. But I think it's 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 important for me, more more mentally than anything. You know, obviously my body need, it needs a break, but it's so much stress that that it goes into a fight camp and then the uh, night of the fight. It's important to take a little time off after. Important to have a, a wife and somebody in your corner who knows how to support you while you're training and preparing. I'm super blessed to have the wife I have. You know, when uh, when we got married and stuff, I like I was training and fighting, but it wasn't like the level it is now. So she has been with me uh, every step of the way, which is pretty awesome, and she uh, she understands this business too. You know, it's definitely a tough one. It's one where you can uh, you can get chewed up and spit out uh, pretty easy. So it's it's uh, pretty great to have her in my corner. That's excellent. Congratulations. I understand that you're expecting your first child. Yes, exactly. We're having our first baby in the end of April, so I'm super excited for that. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't wait. It'll be one of the biggest accomplishments in my life for sure. End of April, summer baby. Well, yeah. something to look forward to for sure. It's going to be great. And I, I can't wait till they get a little older. The minute they can start crawling, they're going to be doing a little training too. I'm going to make a little ninja. Now, Chad, our wrap-up question, uh, looking back now on The Ultimate Fighter, I mean, even just like MMA has progressed, The Ultimate Fighter television show has now progressed and become an incredible phenomenon, too. Do you catch The Ultimate Fighter today? Yeah, I, I, I watch almost every show, and it's, it's pretty cool seeing it now because I've been there, right? So I kind of know exactly what, what all those guys and girls are, are going through, so it's, it's uh, pretty exciting for me to see, and it kind of it brings back those uh, memories from when I was on the show. So as a wrap-up, for those listeners who are uh, fighters and, and future champions, hopefully in the UFC, who are even fighting as amateurs, who want to make a Cinderella story of their career the way you did yours, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, you know, just... Uh Hard work and dedication. That's all it is. You know, you you definitely have to love this. This is a hard goal. So if 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 you're if you're not 100% committed and you don't absolutely love doing this every single day, don't do it. You know, there's definitely a lot of a lot easier things in the world. But for me, this is the most rewarding thing I can do, and I absolutely love it. I'll, I'll be a martial artist to the day I die. You know, this uh, th this part of my life, I'm I'm obviously a prize fighter. This is how I make money. But I will be training, training people, and being a martial artist until the day I die. Chad, thanks very much for taking the time, and we wish you all the very best. Congratulations on your career. Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure speaking with you guys. This has been my interview with UFC fighter Chad LaPreeze. Hi, this is Michael Jai White. You're listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. For those of you listening to Martial Arts World Radio while on your phones, tablets, or laptops, be sure to check out www.bobwallworldblackbelt.com, the world's foremost martial arts online community. Recently, I crossed paths with world champion martial artist and cinema star Cynthia Rothrock.
Now, you may recall that I interviewed Cynthia in an earlier episode of Martial Arts World Radio. However, Cynthia and I caught up and had a short discussion at the Action Martial Arts Hall of Honors Mega Weekend in Atlantic City. Cynthia Rothrock, welcome again to Martial Arts World Radio. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here again with you. So how many years now have you attended the Ultimate Destination for MMA and Martial Arts Expo? Well, for this one, I've been here. This is my 17th year, and I am one of the few, if not the only, one that has come every single year and has not missed it. Good for you, and there's lots of other celebrities here, so it must be somewhat fraternal. You were able to catch up with some old friends. Oh, yeah, I love coming back here, especially, you know, I live on the West Coast, so to see all my friends on the East Coast, and my mom is in Pennsylvania, so it's, uh, it's a great place for me to start the year off. It's in the beginning of the year, you know, I see old friends, see my family, and it's like one of the best events there are. In your observation, how has martial arts and just also the, the followers and the fans of martial arts changed over the past decade or so? Well, let's see. How is it? You know what? I don't know if it's really changed. I think uh, it's pretty much the same, but there's a lot more people coming uh, to the events. And I think because the social media is so strong, a lot of movies have a lot of action in. A lot of your superhero movies have a lot of action in. So pretty much, you know, nothing has changed as far as the people that do martial arts. Uh, but I think it's just uh, in the last decade, you see a lot of people, a lot more people coming. By the way, I had an interview not that long ago with Lauren Avedon, who, uh, who mentioned you in the interview and that you had worked together in some films. And I think now, looking at the list of stars who you've worked with, you've had a, a long list of co-stars. So would you share a memorable moment with us that perhaps stands out from some of your cinema experiences? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, let's see. I've, I've had, uh, mm, yes, I've been uh, blessed to work with almost every martial artist there is. But I guess... Um, Okay, put me on the spot. One thing that stands out, I remember I was doing a movie with Vincent Lin and Jeff Falcon, and we were in Hong Kong, and Jeff hit me really hard, and he missed my pad, you know, where my pad was. So I was like, Jeff, hit the pad. That's what I have the pad on. Hit it right here, right? So as I was saying that to him, I was walking backwards, and, that, and as I was walking backwards, this was... Um, uh, they had, I think it was in Taiwan, there was like uh, cement little points on the ground and I tripped over it and I fell into a rose bush and my butt got stuck with like probably about a hundred thorns and they had to pull me out and then I was like, uh, I had all these like little puncture wounds all in my butt and I was like, this doesn't seem good, do I have to go to the doctor? He's like, no, just put something on it. So I was like, okay, I got back for like saying, don't hit me there. <laughs> so that was kind of kind of funny. So I guess that's one of the memorable ones I've had. <laughs> Just another day in the life of a martial arts star. It, it sure is. Another day, yes. <laughs> My last question for you, Cynthia, was uh, as a forms and weapon champion, was there a particular weapon that was your favorite or speciality? Yeah, I used to compete most of the time with the uh, Chinese hook swords. And basically that's a bunch of multiple weapons in, in you know, combined into one, and uh, at that time, nobody really saw them, and uh, I was lucky. I was studying with Chum Leung in New York City, and I learned it, and then I went to China to learn more, and that was back, like, in the 80s, so uh, that's still today my favorite weapon to use, but that's pretty much what I competed mostly with in weapons. Actually, I lied. I do have another question for you. I was talking to uh, Carrie Tagawa earlier, and we were talking about how one person can help to heal the world. You know, Carrie's uh, got some great philosophies, very deep. But from a perspective of movies, do you feel that films, and in particular action films, can carry a moral that can have a positive influence on the world? 
Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it goes back to what my philosophy is, is that everybody should know some sort of self-defense. And I can't tell you the countless number of people that have started martial arts because they saw my films, you know, and they go to me, well, if you could do it, I think I could do it, you know, because I don't look like I could really, you know, defend myself, but obviously I can. So uh, I think, you know, that definitely goes into the you know, realm of healing the world because, you know, if you can protect your life or protect someone that's with you someday, that's priceless. And you look like you're keeping yourself in terrific shape. My compliments. Do you still train and do you do katas regularly? Um, I train. I train a lot. Uh, when I was uh, competing professionally, I would train probably six to eight hours a day just doing my weapons, just doing my forms. When I retired from competition number one, then I was like, okay, now I can go do different things because I would not train in anything that didn't uh, relate to my martial arts. So today I'm a big avid uh, trekker and hiker. I like to do that. I hiked base camp in Mount Everest. I just returned from the Inca Trail. Uh, my next trip will be Patagonia. So that's kind of my other love now is getting out into the wilderness and trekking. So I do a lot of that. Um, I still train in martial arts. I teach people. I do a lot of seminars. So, you know, I still, you know, I think once you're a martial artist, you'll train your whole life. You'll never stop. You know, so uh, so I do that, and I like all sports. So I'm very sporty, and I kind of like you know I kayak and I bicycle, and you know if if there's a sport, I, I'll be there doing it. <laughs> well, Cynthia, keep on trekking, and thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to my recent discussion with Cynthia Rothrock. Now, at the same event, I also caught up with accomplished martial artist and action film star Michael Jai White. Michael J. White, welcome back to Martial Arts World Radio. Thanks for having me back, man. It's good to be back. Now, Alan Goldberg's event here, the ultimate destination for MMA and martial arts mega weekend expo. How many years have you attended this? Probably about 14 years. About 14 years. And, and I mean, there's some amazing world champions here as well, celebrities like yourself. It's more like a high school reunion. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely a reunion for me. It's my fraternity. The martial arts fraternity is something that, you know, it made me who I am. There's people who basically I've seen from some of the very first tournament I attended. Yeah, I mean, you're an accomplished martial artist yourself and high-degree black belts in many styles. I think at least eight, eight styles. Are you still learning? Are you ever learning? Always, always. This martial arts is a metaphor for life for me. I never look at anything from only one perspective. It's all about continuing the journey, continuing learning. Not to point people out, but I see a lot of people who um, be become black belts and then they, st they just stop or they just stay with one system and then they're bowed to and they're, they're respected, but some tend to lose the feeling that they had when they were students themselves. And that whole learning thing and, and continuing. So when people are kind of dying off, sometimes that ends the lineage of something. So it's just kind of like, it just gets stagnant. The, the folks, like in the tradition of Bruce Lee, who got humbled to learn other styles and continue their learning, they, they really prospered from that. So I just encourage that. Now on a completely different topic, the Dark Knight, working with Heath Ledger on, I believe, now correct me if I'm wrong, I think this it might have been his second last film. It was definitely one of his last films, not the last. Uh, any thoughts or words about working with an incredible talent like Heath Ledger? Yeah, it was his second to last film. And unfortunately, people brand him 
with this method actor <laughs> kind of connection, which he was not. He didn't walk around in character and, and have that character possess him in any way like that. People kind of, they romanticize and believe that because he played such a dark character. Nothing would be further from the truth. He, once the director yelled cut, he was just, he, he would joke around, we'd play games, pranks, and, and magic tricks and stuff. And, and he was just like a really genuine and, and very um, giving type of person. And uh, nothing like what you might label on a Hollywood actor. He's just a really pleasant guy, a lot of fun. Yeah. Like yourself. Oh, thank you. When you saw the final product when the, at the screening, when the film came out and you saw his performance as the Joker, what were your thoughts then when you saw it all come together? I, I thought he, was, he just did an amazing job. Uh, he, like I say, he would, he would play around and do different takes, different ways, you know. He would, he would do a take that was kind of subdued, then he would do another one that was a little more animated, and then he'd do one that was just kind of berserk. And he, would, he actually would ask other actors what, what choice they liked. You know, the, the confidence of a major actor to do that, and the, the connection he has with just his fellow actors and just fellow human beings, giving them that kind of uh, respect for their opinion was amazing. You know, this, this, is, this is who that guy was. And um, it's, it's like, it's contrary to any, any like stereotypes that you might see of actors now. And when I saw that movie and I saw how he kind of got there with this kind of darker character and, and that still he still kept the fun in it. Uh, I just thought he just did an amazing job and it, it is an inspiration for me as well. Michael, my wrap-up question here, taking a look behind us on your banner, you know, you have Spawn, Universal Soldier, Mortal Kombat, Jax Briggs, of course you remember that, The Dark Knight. Looking through your repertoire of characters that you've played, is there a favorite or one that you prefer over the others? I gotta say Black Dynamite because that's something that came out of my head. I, I, I had this crazy notion of this movie and I, I basically saw the whole movie on a trip to set while I was listening to a James Brown record. And I'm laughing hysterically to myself and to one day have the jokes that I thought were funny be funny like worldwide. That that's something that I, I'm really proud of, and um, and so it's it's dear to my heart, dear to our hearts as well. Michael, as always, thank you so much. You're so um, approachable and so real. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, thank you, man. <laughs> you're you're my favorite interviewer. <laughs> From now on, let that be known. Okay. <laughs> that was my recent conversation with action star Michael Jai White. Christine Bannon Rodriguez, born November 6, 1966, is an American martial artist, actress, stunt person, and fight choreographer. Her choreography and stunt work can be seen in films such as The Next Karate Kid, Mortal Kombat Conquest, and Batman and Robin. She holds nine world championships, including consecutive three-time world titles at the WAKO Games. And at what age did you begin um, taking instruction when you were younger? 
I started when I was 13, and I just did it as an after-school activity, just with a, another girl. She wanted to, uh, her brother was taking martial arts, and it was in the neighborhood, and I, I was like, yeah, we'll try it, you know, because my parents were very strict, and, you know, unless it was doing a sport or something like that, I wasn't going out on a school night, so it was a way of getting out and, and you know, trying something else. I had played a lot of those sports, but I really fell in love with the martial arts. The, the Kempo and Wushu? Yes, I started my training in Kempo, which I still train in and, and um, instruct. But after I made my black belt, I started studying Wushu as well for competition purposes mostly. And what did that do, integrating the two together? How did that bring value to you as a competitor? Well, I think the Kempo is a very hard style, um, although it's very fluid. It's a very strong, you know, more similar to the karate, and, and I took that power and, and strength. You know, sometimes you, you can watch a wushu or a kung fu stylist, and they have that beautiful flow of their movements and stuff, but um, it's a little different than the karate. I mean, they don't have that, you know, sometimes they don't have that, that real strong power um, behind their techniques. Some of them do, and, and that's what makes them great kung fu and, and wushu practi practitioners. But I think I took that hard, hard part of the karate part and kind of blended it with, with the wushu. So I looked a lot to karate judges that were out there judging in competition. I, my difficulty level was much higher than someone just doing a karate form, but I also had the power behind it and the strong stances and everything else. So... Um, you know, they would lean towards myself because because of that difficulty level, but still being equally as strong as the other competitors. Which one do you relate to more, uh, or do you have a preference between the two? You know, I I really enjoy the beauty of the wushu, but but I would say probably the kempo because that's where I started, and just as an overall martial art as far as the self defense involved and the fighting and the cottas and everything else, just that on an overall base, I, I really enjoy the Kempo. Christine, at what age did you begin competing? Pretty much at 13 when I first started. I mean, I didn't do it as a white belt. I was probably a yellow or an orange belt at my first tournament. Um, but, you know, started off very early. And back then the rules were a lot different than they are today. I, I was as big as I am now. I mean, girls mature and they... At 13, I was the same size I am now, so I would enter the women's division and fight women rather than fighting the boys or, you know, teenage division. So, so they didn't have rules like that back then where you couldn't fight adults if you were under 18. And in terms of instruction today, do you still run schools? Yep. My husband and I own a, own a big school in Rhode Island. Um, you know, teach, uh, I teach karate. I teach the Kempo. And also a little bit of wushu I teach, um, very small group of students that do that. Um, and I have a big kickboxing program and just started uh, teaching Krav Maga last year. So, Yeah, Krav Maga is really martial art. can be a very lethal martial art. You have to adjust it so that you're able to instruct it for self-defense because, of course, it's a, it's a combat martial art that can be quite lethal. Yes, um, I find that it's, it's kind of tough to... Very physical art, and it's, it's where karate, some people might not enjoy the sparring part and the physical contact, but there's a lot of other things in the karate. Um, in the Krav Maga, it's all self-defense, so there's always contact being made. So, you know, I find that it's hard to, hard to maintain the female students, so I kind of like to pipe it down a little bit to keep them, uh, keep them coming back and stuff. But, it's, it's, you know, I have a lot of uh, prison guards, 
prison guards that have been training with me and, and people that are kind of in that field because it's something that they feel is important for their safety and, and their profession. And do you train your students for competition as well? Yes, we do. We have probably maybe 10% of our students that compete. We don't force them to compete, but the ones that do, some people walk in the door of a karate school, their main goal is to become a black belt. Some just want to lose weight. Some people walk in and they want to become a world champion someday. So, you know, of course, we want to train them and, and uh, help them reach their goals. So we do have, you know, a small competition team that travels and, and competes almost, almost every other weekend we're at a tournament. Is it a different curriculum for those you're training for competition versus just self-defense in the street? Well, they still learn all the other stuff, but then they would have on top of that curriculum, they would have some special training for sport karate. And, and you know, we just uh, we have like a special competition class and stuff like that that they do on the weekend. And, you know, so they train a little bit differently in, in, in that field. And, and we'll change their... You know, they, some of them compete, compete in the traditional forms, but some of them do the extreme and the crazy stuff out there. So, you know, we have to work with them on, on those things. And uh, we promote the Ocean State Grand Nationals, which is a big tournament. It's a, one of the NASCAR national tournaments on the, on the national uh, circuit for the year. And we hold that in April um, in Rhode Island. So, you know, a lot of our students get really excited because we have people coming in from out of the country, you know, all over the world that come to compete here. So... They're gearing up for that. In terms of the wisdom that was gained from being a world champion like yourself, I would imagine that's a real advantage for your students that in addition to learning the martial arts curriculum, you're able to perhaps pass on some life lessons that were gained from your travels and your competition experience. The character building aspects of martial arts, is that an important part of what you do? Absolutely. And whether they're competitors or not, but especially for competitors, they have to have a good attitude out there uh, if they're training in our school. You know, you win or lose, you have to have a good attitude. You have to walk away from, from the experience that you learn something. Um, you know, you can be upset with yourself and go back to the dojo and, you know, train ten times harder, but, you know, don't take it out on your competitors or your officials. Be respectful. And, and yeah, character development is, is a big thing that we work with our kids on. Um, they have homework assignments every month and stuff just, just to help them. You know, we want them not to just be great kickers and punchers. We want them to be doing great in school. We want them to, you know, have that yes sir, yes ma'am attitude when they're going to school or anywhere that they might be. So just a, this is not a trick question, but just as an example, if a parent came to you and said that their child was neglecting their studies, how would you handle a situation like that with that student? Um, I would definitely have a sit-down talk with them, but uh, depending on where they are in their cycle from one belt to the next, they wouldn't be allowed to test. Um, we require students to have paperwork signed by their, their school teachers and their parents that they're doing well in school and, and passing. and. And, you know, it's usually like a month wait before the next test. And I've seen 90% of the kids be able to pull themselves out of completely failing and bring themselves up to passing grades and stuff in less than a month. So it's been very successful. Christine, do you miss competition? You know, I go to a lot of these tournaments, and sometimes I'll, I'll be walking by the ring and say, you know, God, I... I'd love to get out there and, and compete, but, uh, 
you know, I mean, I think more so on, on the fighting end, you know, I, I'd love to get out there and, and I watch the men's competition over the years. I mean, it's changed, but it's, it's pretty good. Um, the female competition, I mean, it was so dominant back in the day with Linda Denley and Arlene Lemus and, um, you know, Chevelle Aaron and, and just, you know, some great female fighters that were out there back in the day. And it was always, you always knew who was going to end up winning the tournament because they were the, 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 you know, dominant person. And, you know, now it's like the, the women's divisions, they're not half as big as they used to be. They're very small. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, you know, with the female divisions uh, and the fighting, is, it's much different, you know. My wrap-up question for you, Christine, thanks for your time today. Can you describe for me the, the emotion in the instance when you won your first world championship? I was pretty excited because it, winning a WACA world title was very similar to the Olympics to me on the same level with, uh, you know, at that time it was like 80-something countries. You know, you get the national anthem played and the, the flag being dropped behind you and getting a gold medal put on. But um, that was at the first world championships I went to. and But I still went there with the mentality of, you know, I'm supposed to win, you know. So so when I took a, a bronze in fighting, I was very disappointed, very, you know. Most people would have gone home, you know, on cloud nine that they won a gold. But I was, I was very upset that I lost it you know, the last match in fighting, and, you know, after I went to that first world championship, I just pretty much had it in my mind, I want to win a gold in forms fighting and weapons next time I come here, and, you know, so so the next time I went, I did accomplish that, and that was what really made me happy, you know, being able to accomplish that, and then a lot of people, uh, especially from other countries and people that are in a world type of country that females are not as important as men. Um, where they would all talk about, you know, how freak of a thing it was. It was just pure luck, and so it was. When I got the word of what was being said around the world, I said, I'll, I'll come back and prove them wrong and do it again. You know, so it gave me more motivation. So, so the second time I did it, that's when I was like super excited. That's when they said this kid's for real. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is fantastic. Christine, thank you so much for taking the time today, and congratulations on it, on what an inspiration and example you've been for martial artists, of, regardless of gender, but for women in particular. Thank you very much. You have been listening to my interview with world karate champion and cinema performer Christine Bannon-Rodriguez. This is UFC fighter Alex Ricci. You are listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Hank Garrett is a martial artist and former professional sport wrestler who has trained with some incredible instructors, including Gene LaBelle and Benny the Jet Yurkidis. He was also a comedian and actor who has starred in Serpico, Car 54, Where Are You?, Three Days of the Condor, The Amityville Horror, and many other notable productions. I had the privilege of interviewing Hank at the Action Martial Arts Hall of Honors Mega Weekend in Atlantic City. Hey, Garrett, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. Thank you so much. It's uh, my, my pleasure to be here. And, Hank, how many years have you attended the ultimate destination for MMA and Martial Arts Expo? This is my 17th year, and I look forward to it each and every year. 
you know, Hank, interviewing a guy like you, I mean, where do I begin and when would we ever have enough time? But I understand you're a, you're a professional wrestler, a martial artist, an actor, a comedian. Would you take me back to your wrestling days and perhaps share with me a moment, uh, a momentous moment that stood out from that career? All right. Well, I started, I became a pro at 17 uh, and thought I had to lie about my age to get my license. I wrestled some of the greats, some of the not-so-greats. Well, that's probably saying about me, not-so-great. But uh, I wrestled as Hank Daniels, the Minnesota farm boy, which is kind of interesting because I'd never been to Minnesota and I never saw a farm. But that was the name given to me. And I wound up wrestling Killer Kowalski, and who took me to class. God, did he take me to class. I learned so much from the best. In fact, my mentor was a gentleman named Gene LaBelle was the greatest judo player that ever lived and was still in contact. He's now 86, 87 years old, still doing stunts. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Now, Hank, I know Gene. I interviewed him for a book that I wrote a couple of years ago. And Gene LaBelle is one of those names that's just connected with so many people through, you know, just, just a lineage. So it sounds like you trained and fought with the best. Fortunately, I did. Yes, I, I was very, very lucky. I learned so much. In fact, not too long ago, uh, we were in San Jose, and I was being honored there. And I got to see one of my first teachers, a gentleman named Fumio Demora. And what a feeling, because I was a kid, and I thought I was a hotshot black belt. Then I met Fumio Demora, who taught me that I was not a hotshot black belt. And uh, it was very exciting. My first teacher was a gentleman from Korea named Min Pai. I worked with a gentleman who was the 62 and 63 karate champ. Where did your travels take you as a wrestler? I wrestled a lot uh, in New York. That's where I'm from originally. Canada, Mexico. I wrestled Mil Mascaras, who was God in Mexico. And, of course, he beat me. Not that I let him. <laughs> and he taught me a few things. In fact, I ran into Emil a couple of years ago. And we were at a convention. Now, no one's ever seen him without his mask. And I was introduced to him. And uh, another wrestler said, Hank, do you know Mill? And I, I said, Mill. And he looked at me, and I was about to say something, and he held his finger to his lips. And I said, Mira Mascaras? And he said, yes. You are very good. I said, well, thank you so much, but why did you beat the heck out of me if I was so good? He said, you are young. I have to teach you something. <laughs> I said, thank you. Yeah, and uh, so I, I wrestled all over. And was there a point in time where wrestling went from being, you know, you, you had a legitimate wrestling with guys like yourself and Gene LaBelle, and then it became more theatrical and broke off into a separate stream? We resented that so much. Guys who really, really worked very hard to develop and, and create a name for themselves, and suddenly we got guys who were acrobats, picking up and slugging each other with chairs and barbed wire and pins. It became a farce. It was no longer a sport. In fact, they, they no longer consider it a sport. They consider it entertainment. It hurt a lot. I understand that you also were a martial artist in that you took not just wrestling, but karate. Would you tell us what style of karate and 
tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I first started uh, martial arts. There was a gentleman who came to, into New York from Korea. His name was Min Pai. And he was teaching kids free of charge, hoping to entice the uh, parents and older people. And the uh, first form was Taekwondo Hapkido. Judo I learned from Jean LaBelle. <laughs> Grappling I learned from Jean LaBelle. Hey, would you elaborate a little more on your karate study? Yes. Uh, well, I started martial arts. The gentleman that I started training karate was uh, Jules Paulin, who was the 62 and 63 national champ. Uh, then I went to the Chinatown Dojo, and I got my first black belt from a gentleman by the name of Peter Urban. He was my sensei, my teacher. Then I started training with a kickboxing with Benny the Jet or Akitas. Uh, he is my closest friend. In fact, Deanna Marie and I are godparents to his grandson. That's how close we are. Very nice, very nice. Oh, and Benny is amazing. Six-time world champ, never lost. I sparred with Benny. The pain keeps coming back every time I talk about it. Benny is about five foot five, five foot six, if that tall, 140 pounds. At the time, I sparred with him at 5'10", 225 pounds. Uh, and we were sparring, that kind of pitter-patting, and I said, you know, I'm getting tired of this. I'm going to throw a roundhouse, knock this little guy out, and go home. As I started to throw the kick, he was only about maybe two feet away from me. He went straight up in the air and kicked me on the top of my head. He stunned me. I looked at my watch and said, oh, Benny, listen, I didn't realize how late it is. got to get home. I've got a pot roast in the oven that I'm afraid is going to burn. And, and we became close friends after that. So, Hank, not to take away from your prowess as a martial artist, but Benny being just the size he is, it must have been as though you guys were sparring at two different speeds. Oh, it, was, it was a shock. I said, who else came in and hit me? <laughs> he went, to see a guy go without making a step forward, but just springing straight up in the air. Wow. Wow. And he's, he's an amazing guy. Well, the sweetest guy. Very spiritual. Very. Extremely. I, and uh, we're very fortunate uh, to be godparents to his, his grandson. A wonderful little boy named Levi. So we got Gene LaBelle and Benny the Jet. Wow. Wow. Keep, keep, keep talking. Who else? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Don the Dragon, close friend Cynthia at Rothrock. These people are legends. Hank, you were a power lifter. Please regale us with the story of your training. I understand that you were unable to fit into a phone booth at one point because you were so large. Yes, I was... I started training with uh, a guy who was the world champ, an Olympic champ, a guy named John Davis. Uh, he was a gold medalist at the Olympics. And I started training with him. I didn't have the finesse to be an Olympic lifter. I didn't have the speed. I had a lot of power, a lot of strength. So I became a power lifter. And I wound up doing a 750-pound squat. And stupidly... Uh, I said, I want 780. And my trainer said, you just won. You broke the record. I said, well, I want to break it so that no one can come close. <laughs> I broke the record and my knees at the same time. I blew the meniscus on both knees. I was also competing as a bodybuilder. A buddy of mine, 
who was my training partner, a gentleman named Leroy Colbert. He was the first black universe. And he had 22-inch arms, cold. And we trained together, pound for pound, rep for rep. He became Mr. Universe. I put on 25 pounds. I said, there's something wrong with this picture. And so, uh, but I continued training. In fact, my lovely manager, Deanna Marie, and I trained together. And she does an hour of yoga and then does an hour of pumping iron with me. I'm still trying to recuperate from the yoga that she did when she tells me about the stretches of the thing, and I go, oh, my God, I got tired just watching her. I've been teaching her some karate moves. Big mistake I'm making. My life is now in danger because she can kick and throw punches like you will not believe. It, it's, it's been wonderful being involved in, in so many different aspects and, and in sports. What's your opinion and your impression of professional mixed martial arts, such as Bellator or the UFC? I'm a big fan of MMA. I've known a few people who are involved. In fact, some of them were training with Gene LaBelle, a young lady who was the champ, Ronda Rousey. And my personal opinion, she's lost twice now. She lost the title, and she tried to come back, and she lost to the challenger. And my feeling is get back to training with Gene. And I think that's the reason she really lost. In both cases, in my opinion anyway, she didn't fight her usual fight. She didn't fight. So you look at the victories she had where she dominated. They were very judo-based, very aggressive. She went on the offensive early, whereas the two fights she lost, uh, she was kind of fighting like a traditional, uh, very orthodox, conservative MMA stand-up fight, which I don't believe was how she won her other fights. No, she didn't. Hollywood. When did Hollywood come knocking? Because you've had a very prolific career in film and television. I was a street hoodlum in New York. Sammy Davis Jr. got me off the street because my mom, who was just a peddler, sold fruits and vegetables, was crying to a man who was the mayor of Harlem. Uh, he came to me. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. And he said, uh, I'm so-and-so, I'm the mayor of Harlem, and I got permission from your mother to take you out. I thought he was going to kill me. When you say that to a New York, I want to take you out. Start running. He took me to dinner. Uh, what he said to me was, do you have a suit? I said, yeah, I've got a suit. He said, I want you to wear the suit tonight, but before you do, take a bath. And he slapped a cigarette out of my mouth. And I went to throw a punch at him. But he had two bodyguards that looked, there was two Samoans, it looked like two mountains moved toward me. And he took me to dinner that evening uh, in Harlem, a place called Wells. I had uh, fried chicken and waffles. And he said, do you like the food? And I went, yeah, I like the food. And you're talking to a Neanderthal. He said, there'll be a package for you to take home to your mom. And he took me to the Apollo Theater, which was an all-black theater in Harlem, to meet Sammy Davis Jr. And we went right into the dressing room. And there was hundreds of people waiting to see Sammy. Went right into the dressing room and Sam addressed me and said, Mr. Bryan said, you're either going to go to prison or you're going to die. I said, that's it? That's my choice? He said, the way you're going? Yeah. And at the time, I had a, a pistol in my pocket, 13 years old, carrying a gun. Got me a job. I was a band boy for an all-black orchestra. 
And I said, what's a band voice? And you put out the music and the stands for each individual musician, and then at the end of the gig, put it all back. And Lucky Millinder, that was the orchestra, came over and handed me $50. Massive amount of money. And he said, get yourself some new kicks, shoes. I bought a pair of Forshime shoes for $15 and gave the 35 to my mom. More money than she had seen all month. And it started from there. I was a band boy working at the Hotel Teresa. I wound up being the first white comedian to work the Apollo Theater because of another black comedian named Nipsey Russell. Uh, he was also on Car 54. We, we did Car 54 together. I was a cop. I became a cop for about a minute and a half. And when I was a cop, I got this audition for a new show called Car 54, Where Are You? And that's how it happened. That's, that was the start. So I, and it just went from there. There's many of us that would just consider it a blessing to be a professional wrestler. Others a comedian, others an actor. I mean, there's people who endeavor their entire life just to have 15 seconds of success in these areas. And you've been able to enjoy success in all of them. You must feel really blessed. I am. I am blessed. I refer to our father as my boss. He's never wrong, no matter whatever path I've been on. The path always turns into a pot of gold. Not necessarily for me, but uh, he showed me the way. You know, as a, as a troubled young hoodlum, as you refer to yourself, a young hoodlum in the streets of New York, to the gentleman that you are today, uh, which is obviously the true you, oh. what was the turning point? Was, it, was that the turning point, or was it gradual that you were able to stop being a, a hoodlum and start a journey where you would learn, you know, righteousness and learn right from wrong and start to, to, to live a life worth living. There were acts of kindness. I was very hungry walking the streets. And this was in Harlem on 111th Street. There was one night very cold. I actually slept on, on cardboard boxes at one point. And I passed the, the store. The windows were blacked out and I heard music coming out of the, the store. And I looked in, and there were people singing, clapping, and dancing. I looked in, and the gentleman came over to me, and he said, son, you, are you okay? I said, yeah, I was shivering. And he said, come on in, are you hungry? And I said, that's my middle name. He said, come in. And there were massive amounts of food on huge tables. He said, eat as much as you want. He said, do you have anybody that you live with? I said, yeah, my mom, my dad. He said, what are they doing? I said, they're peddlers. You know, they sell fruits and vegetables. He said, eat all the food that you want. He said, if you like, you can take some home to your mom and your dad. He said, uh, I said, who are you? And he said, my name is Father Divine. He was an evangelist. So his kindness, Sammy Davis, It's hard to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but, uh, I get a bit choked up about it. Understandably. Because I was really, really headed for doom, you know, carrying a gun, which I got rid of, wound up working at the Copacabana in New York. 
I was in my dressing room, going to put on my first tuxedo, and I took stuff out of my pocket, my handkerchief, and I had a knife. Now here I am in the most prestigious nightclub in the world, and I'm still a hoodlum. I took the knife and threw it in the trash, and I don't need it. That was uh, one of the uh, <laughs> turning points. I have no doubt you've returned that kindness to so many others over a lifetime. I try to. And I'll tell you something else about this lady who's sitting next to me. She has, at one point in life, I was ready to pack it in. I'd had two failed marriages. I lost my older boy in a motorcycle accident. My younger son, I don't hear from him at all because I ran out of money. And then Deanna Marie came into my life as my manager, but just showing me. I kind of try to return. We've been through her. We went to see children that are incarcerated. We're talking about babies from the age of 11 to 17. And I've been given the opportunity to talk to them. They don't know me. They don't know anything about me. So we show a clip of Car 54, Where Are You? And they've never seen the show. And it puts them in kind of a receptive mood. Then I go out and talk to them. I said, I was there where you are right now. And there's an angel waiting for you. See, God sent me an angel. And it was Sammy Davis Jr. And the angel will change your life. But you've got to be ready to hear him. You've got to be ready to listen. And I've gotten letters from these kids thanking me. And one of the kids said, Sammy Davis Jr. was your angel. Mr. Garrett, you're mine. But had it, it, had it not been for Deanna Marie, it would never would have happened. And so, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I became a cop. I became a cop because I thought I could make a bit of a difference. And when I was on the police force, uh, as a young patrolman, I got this audition for Car 54, Where Are You? And Matt Hyken, who created the show, as I sat there, I hadn't said a word. He just looked at me and said, you're Ed Nicholson. And I stupidly said, no, no, I'm Hank Garrett. He said, just the kind of dummy I'm looking for. It's just going to be a lot of whacked out cops. And I fit in perfectly. Hank, obviously a, an impromptu interview like this at the Expo is not going to do justice. Usually something like this, we need hours and we design the interview around it, but I wanted to thank you so much. Now, as I understand it, we have some URLs we want to share here. One of them has to do with the book. And uh, would you tell us a little bit about the book? The book is based on my life, on the streets, and where I have gone to. Uh, the book is completed. We're now talking to a couple of literary agents, and it's, the title is Up From the Sidewalk. And that's the story, and I'm sticking to it. Up From the Sidewalk, an autobiography. Your manager, for anybody who's interested in getting in contact with you, is DM Smith at Red Warrior Management. <clears throat> Your website is www.hankgarrett, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot biz. I understand you can be contacted on Facebook at Hank Garrett. Yes, absolutely. And you also have a Twitter account, Hank Garrett. I do, yes. And thank you so much. We wish you all the very best with the book and your further adventures. Thank you so very much. It's my pleasure. Some great, great experiences and life lessons with martial artist, comedian, and actor Hank Garrett.
Be sure to check us out at www.mawradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube by following Martial Arts World Radio. I'm Joseph Clark. Thank you for listening. Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com.